Hi, this is Seth Rodney. I'm a freelance art critic and <clears throat> budding curator, I suppose. And this is my note for the American Age podcast. It is Saturday, August 6th. And I was moved several days ago, very soon after our last conversation, to write this note. And typically I deliver it on Sunday, but um, I'm leaving tomorrow to go to the artist residency at Chautauqua. So I'm getting it in early, although I'm sure that you will hear this at the typical time you listen or see it appear on the uh, uh, iTunes or American Age uh, website um, <clears throat> at its regular time. I, I want to follow up on the conversation specifically refer, uh, specifically talking about the book I'd mentioned that I was partway through reading. I hadn't gotten any, any farther with it. I've been kind of lazy lately about reading. The book is titled The World Without Us and it's written by Alan Weissman. And uh, I didn't do a very good job on the podcast of talking about why the book is important. I, was, I think I was rather shy and mealy-mouthed, frankly. And Travis asked a good question, or, or get ra rather raised a good point. I don't think he was asking questions. He, he said that he didn't like books or polemics that basically posited human beings as the problem. And I disagree. I think that um, I, I want to ask, ask the question, what if we are the problem? And and I want to make this not sort of not put this in existentialist terms, but not us as human, not us as beings on the planet, but rather the attitudes that we have that we can just kind of shit where we eat. The attitude that we can just be sort of profligate in the way we use the environmental environment's resources and not take care of our own environment in a sustainable fashion. I mean, treating the planet. As if it is throwaway, is, is, is at the heart of a lot of what we've been doing around the world, not just in the United States, but around the world um, in the 20th century. And I think we could be different. I think that and to an extent, our attitudes are a problem, um, not just for the ecosystem or biodiversity in general, but for us. I think we're rendering our, our uh, slowly rendering our, our, our own environment uh, uninhabitable for us. Uh, I know that there are people who think that there will be some sort of technological solution that will come into being soon to address the uh, starkly uh, disastrous levels of CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, but I'm not convinced of that. And, you know, the thing about this planet is that we don't really have another one to travel to. Um, there aren't any habitable ones within easy reach, and we haven't mastered faster than light travel. Hell, we haven't even managed how to um, <clears throat> preserve our own forests. So um, that's the problem that's on a horizon that is seemingly getting closer daily. And then I thought about this story on the Daily podcast, or rather on the podcast, The Daily, which is produced by The New York Times. The title of the uh, podcast is <clears throat> Utah's Environmental Nuclear Bomb. And I think it came out um, last Friday, uh, I believe. I believe that's the case. Uh, I listened intently to this 
podcast because the uh, the environmental reporter and I sorry I don't remember his name who was narrating the majority of it had gone out to the Great Salt Lake in Utah, which has seen record low levels uh, in uh, in this year. Um, I think I think the previous record was in 1963, but they've um, gone below that. And the reason they have is that they're pulling more waters from the rivers and streams that actually feed the Great Salt Lake. And when I say they, I mean the municipalities. Um, it's one of the apparently one of the fastest growing cities uh, in America, despite this problem with water supply. And seventy percent of it is going to agriculture, fifteen percent of it is going to the cities, and fifteen percent to industry. And <clears throat> if you listen to the podcast, and I recommend that you do, the reporter tells you that at towards the end that ultimately the, the, the great problem or rather where the rubber sort of hits the road is administrators and uh, elected officials have the power to essentially curb water usage and prevent this coming uh, an environmental and economic disaster. And I should mention something about why it's a disaster. Apparently, the when the Great Salt Lake is, is at its normal levels, it feeds the... Um, the uh, precipitation above of the mountain surrounding it. And that helps with snowpack. And if they have, and they talk about this in the podcast, if, they, if the lake is lower than it typically is, you get less snowpack, in which influence has a knock-on effect and um, uh, impacts this snow season in Utah. So fewer people coming, uh, rather less snowfall, fewer people coming, uh, that means less tourist dollars in the city uh, or fewer tourist, do- tourist dollars in the city. Um, it also has a profound effect potentially in that, and they've seen this already, um, people who are studying the, the Great Salt Lake and uh, those who are concerned citizens, there are patches where the lake used to be that are, have dried up. And the problem with that is that they, those dried up patches, when dust storms come through, they release, and they talk about this in the podcast, they release um, heavy metals that have been embedded in the uh, soil um, that is now exposed to air. What they found in testing um, the uh, particles in the air uh, during that uh, whip up in the air during these dust storms is that they are uh, potentially very hazardous and <clears throat> contain heavy metals, which may be cancer causing. So the issue uh, is that if the lake dries up entirely, the whole ecosystem would become unbalanced. Uh, not, and it doesn't just affect birds migrating from other parts of the world, stopping off at the Salt Lake um, before migrating onwards. It also has everything to do with these particles that will get released in the air. Um, it's only perhaps a slight exaggeration to say that if this does occur, that people would have to be walking around with gas masks. Uh, uh, 
uh, and, uh, and being outdoors might actually be hazardous, especially during these storm conditions. And the thing that struck me most profoundly uh, was that um, the reporter said, and I'm going to actually find it. Maybe I'll just play it for you. Lawn, and you want to water that lawn? Nobody wants to tell you not to water that lawn. No one wants to tell you where you can or cannot live. I think there's a, a mentality in this country that we don't want to impose sacrifice on Americans. And unfortunately, a lot of adapting to climate change really means imposing some degree of sacrifice, some narrowing of the choices that they have. And what's so revealing about this case is Salt Lake City is reluctant to impose meaningful change or meaningful sacrifice on its residents. Yeah. Our inability or unwillingness to impose meaningful sacrifice in order to stave off environmental catastrophe is a problem. I just, I feel like when we've been talking about this on a, on related issues on the podcast lately that um, I end up being a bit more diametrically opposed to Travis's point of view because he's now very much about this idea of freedom being the ultimate human aim and um, perhaps perhaps the way to say it is the key human virtue and I, and I don't think so. I think actually part of our problem and this is a worldwide problem, but it becomes particularly obvious in the U.S. is that we are unwilling to impose meaningful sacrifice on each other to preserve each other's lives. I think the gun debate is very much about this. Um, we are unwilling to curtail someone else's quote-unquote rights or freedoms in order to protect ourselves, to protect our children, to make um, our, our public spaces safer. That's a deep rot in the human condition. And, and that's a problem that's not going away. And... Um, yeah, I think it is world. It is actually worth thinking about what the world might look like if we did not have that deep and abiding rot in our spirits. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is C. Travis Webb, editor of the American Age, and this is my note on last week's podcast. Um, last week, we uh, ostensibly were supposed to be talking about uh, millennial migration patterns and. Uh, how uh, previous generations' tendencies to move, um, you know, out west or to um, to relocate for economic opportunity seems to be uh, changing, and they seem to live closer to home, or uh, the the data suggests that they're living closer to home. And Stephen and I kept getting sidetracked by notions of freedom. Uh, and, you know, Seth's objected to that fairly, right? I mean, this is, we were definitely kind of wandering farther afield, even though, you know, in my head, these things are connected. Um, and, you know, I believe they are connected. Uh, but I want to return to what Seth was, was trying to, to point us back towards. And, and that is that when you are in an unfamiliar environment, 
it is natural for humans, for animals, to be uncomfortable. Um, the unknown in our history has generally been a threat. If you wander into unknown territory, uh, you are likely to be this the potential prey of predators that you are unfamiliar with. Uh, you're likely to be unclear on how to secure food. Um, or if we're you know not moving that far into the distant past, um, you're likely to stand out. You're likely to not be familiar with the customs of the culture that you are near um, or that that you're currently embedded in. That's not weird, right? I mean, that's just normal. The idea that you could be instantly at home everywhere in the world is is kind of fantastic, right? It it is intuitively if you take a moment to reflect on it, it's it's an absurdity. Um of course we aren't comfortable everywhere in the world. And in fact, what uh, what progressives or critical theorists often lament about this sort of McDonald's culture is precisely this, that everything has become familiar. Everything has become the same. So to be in a small town in the American South or the American Midwest or Southwest, somewhere outside of the coastal antipodes, the progressive bastions in this country, and to feel uncomfortable there is actually super normal. Um, what you then have to fall back on is your experience of human beings. And most human beings do not wish you harm because most human beings couldn't care less about you in particular. There might be some kind of generalized sense of, you know, not wanting to see you injured or not wanting to see you starve or suffering, you know, invoking pity uh, or maybe empathy in people that are a little bit more sophisticated. Uh, but certainly most people aren't thinking enough about you to wish you harm. That's just not how their lives are organized. Now, some people wish you harm, but those people are everywhere. They're pretty evenly distributed. They're in cities, they're in country, they're in countrysides, they're in small towns, they're in big towns, they're in schools, they're in universities, they're in local bars, they're in the grocery store, they're in the liquor store, they're at the gas station, they're driving, they're watching movies. People who wish you harm, people who actively or who would actively go out of their way to make your day less pleasant, to make your journey bumpier to agitate you, are everywhere. They're just a tiny minority. And they are a tiny minority everywhere. That's no different. It's not different in big cities. It's not different in small towns. It's just what it is. Conflating the two is where we get a lot of our cultural anxiety in the United States. We tend to assume that people in strange places wish us harm, but they don't. These are just strange places, and they make us uncomfortable. And that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything in particular, that our judgments when we are anxious are trash. Anxiety makes turns our brain to mush. We are not able to accurately assess most situations when we're anxious about those situations. And that's, again, true of everywhere. So, you know, I know we got sidetracked on, on the freedom thing, but but this aspect, or I got sidetracked on it, and, and Stephen a little bit too, and even though I, I do think they're connected, Seth's question is valid. 
But the assumption comes from 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 an assumption that has a specific history and a specific time and place, and that is the United States in the latter half of the 20th century and early 21st century, maybe Western uh, European culture as well, uh, as well, that you can go anywhere and be at home. But you can't go everywhere and be at home because you have one home. You have one place. Maybe you've moved. You have one place that you are familiar with. Maybe you have a handful of places. But that discomfort that you feel in new places gets managed in a variety of ways. And it's entirely normal when you move to a new place or come to a new culture to assimilate. This is one of the things that's that like in, uh, when I was in grad school and, and undergrad, certainly assimilation was just this awful, evil word. Oh, they're assimilating, they're assimilating, they're assimilating. Isn't it weird not to assimilate? If you relocate, since we're bodies, right? We're physical creatures. You know, we eat, we shit, we reproduce, right? We're just, we're in bodies, right? Our environments are incredibly important to us. Wouldn't it be weird if you grew up on a mountain and then you moved to a river valley to not assimilate to life there? Life in a river valley is going to be very different than life on a mountain. Life on a prairie, very different than uh, than life in a swamp. Life in a desert, very different than a coastal community. It's the same with cultures. Of course you're going to assimilate. That's what we do. We're pro-social primates. We assimilate to one another. We learn how to navigate our social situations by coming up with codes so that we can conduct ourselves with, with the lowest amount of anxiety possible, or the least amount of anxiety possible, I should say. That's normal. The idea that you would relocate to another continent, a totally different culture, and keep all aspects of your origin culture, that is the anomaly. That's the weird thing. Now, let me add, I think that's fine. Diaspora cultures tend to take on more exaggerated demonstrations of their culture. For example, in Egypt, um, a scarf wearing amongst women, at least up until recently, uh, was far less common than diaspora Egyptian communities. It's far more common for di- diaspora Egyptian women to wear headscarves as opposed to uh, Egyptian uh, uh, women in Egypt, even when they're both uh, Muslim. This is common. It's not just it's not just Egyptian Muslims. It's you know this is true of of other cultures as well. Um, a lot of times, this was certainly true of of uh, Jewish culture throughout history. You take on exaggerated demonstrations of your culture, you know, probably for reasons of anxiety or want communi- communal solidarity. That's fine. It, it's not a. It's not. I mean, there's you know friction that comes along with it, but there's no judgment about that. But that itself is the artificial thing, right? That that mo- moving your culture, which developed in a particular time and place, to a new time to a new place that is totally different, and keeping those aspects of your culture—that's the weird thing. Again, it's I'm glad, honestly, I'm glad that we do that though, because it makes cosmopolitan cities such wonderful places to be. It's what makes New York wonderful and London. You know, I don't want those places to be uh, fully assimilated at all. Of course, you know th- this is part of the the pleasure of wandering in a big city. But the idea that assimilation itself is an indication of some you know monomaniacal oppressive cultural regime or whiteness in you know in the West is just it's so it's such a silly idea. It's it's just ridiculous. Um, 
and so and Seth was clearly not I'm not attributing that argument to Seth at all. He was not saying that even a little bit. But this is something that is often said. And this is something that's often talked about. This is something you'll find on social media, you know, this idea. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to take my note to address uh, more particularly what Seth was going after in last week's conversation, because, you know, it's a fair question. Um, as always, uh, thanks very much for listening, and uh, we'll catch you up uh, this coming week. Bye-bye.